But this time I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Holy Scriptures we will consider this morning. We'll read two passages, one from Mark chapter 9. We'll read verse 1 to verse 8. And then we'll jump over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 21. As you make your way to those two passages, I just want to let you know that we're beginning today a new sermon series on the attributes of God. We're not just going to study about God as an abstract and philosophical kind of endeavor. No, actually we have the aim and the goal to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Creator and Redeemer in a personal and experiential way. And that is why we're calling this series Meeting the Living God. And so we don't want to just study about God together. We want to get to know God personally. And for the next several weeks, we will read and unpack various passages from God's Word with this goal to let the one true God reveal Himself to us more fully through His living and abiding Word. With that introduction, let us read the two passages. First from Mark chapter 9, verse 1 to 8. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And now the passage from Second Peter, beginning in verse 16. That same Peter who was on the mountain of Jesus' transfiguration says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well, to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it this morning. Well, as you all know, we live in a highly critical age, and people reject Christianity for a variety of 
critiques. Today I want to address one of those critiques, and it's this one, that even if God really does exist, can we know him? In other words, is our goal of meeting the living God even possible? In the text before us, the Apostle Peter claims, yes, it is possible because God has made himself known to us. And here we find that the one true God has revealed his majesty to humanity because he wants to be known by us. Peter is claiming that God revealed his majesty to him and others when they saw Jesus transfigured on that mountaintop. As eyewitnesses, Peter and the apostles have reported God's majesty to us, and now we are called to regard the majesty of God as revealed to us in his holy scriptures. Those will be our three points this morning. First, God's majesty revealed. Then secondly, God's majesty reported. And thirdly, God's majesty regarded. First, God's majesty revealed. If you have the passage still open before you look again at verse 16 in 2 Peter there. The Apostle Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So in the context of Peter's day, Peter is making an argument here that the future return of Jesus, his powerful coming at the end of all time, is not fake news. False teachers were spreading a rumor in the church, a bad one. They were saying that Jesus Christ is never going to come back to judge the living and the dead. They're saying it's fake news. These critics were calling the apostles like Peter liars. And we see this all the time, right? In, in our own news today. We're given two different, very biased perspectives on what is happening all the time. And it can be so hard to figure out who's telling the truth, or at least who is closer to the truth of what happened. And what proof does Peter give to support his claim that Jesus is indeed returning in power, that he's coming back? He says this, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And since, since he revealed himself in his glory and his majesty, surely he will return again. Now, the term here for eyewitnesses that Peter uses in the Greek is very unique and interesting. It refers to someone who witnessed a revelation of divine glory in a religious ceremony. This same term was used in the first century to refer to religious initiates that joined the so-called mystery cults of the day. They were these secret societies that had religion tied into it similar perhaps to the Freemasons today. The initiates were led blindfolded, think this, or picture this, blindfolded, led into a big temple, and then a dramatic moment marked by the melodious voice of the leader, the priests, then marked the time to take off those blindfolds, and together they witnessed a spectacle of brilliant light in a dark temple there in the middle, with hundreds of initiates holding torches, the priest placed with inside a hollowed-out statue of a goddess, brilliant torches that were very bright. And so it produced this spectacle, this pyrotechnic show that marveled the people in the day. 
It was meant to dazzle the people. It was a highly staged event. Now, why did they put on this big show? It was in order to validate their cleverly devised myths about their gods and goddesses. Now, what is interesting, fascinating, is that what Peter says here, when he says that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Peter used that very same term that was used for the initiates, those eyewitnesses of the spectacle in the mystery cults. And this had me, I have to admit, had me confused during the week as I was studying this passage. I asked myself, why would Peter use such a loaded term here in this passage? I think I understand it now. Peter wants to show, by way of comparison with the fake staged light shows of the mystery cults, that what he and the other apostles saw with their eyes was the real deal. It was a real historic unveiling of God's majesty before their eyes. Jesus, as we read, led them to a natural place outside on a high mountain. It was not a stage production. Jesus led them in the light of day without tools, no blindfolds, no torches, and there Peter and the others witness with their eyes the majesty of Jesus. Now what event does that refer to? Well, Peter tells us in the next two verses to clarify, he says he saw the majesty of Jesus when he received honor and glory from God the Father on the holy mountain, he goes on to say. And of course, here Peter is referring to that extraordinary moment that we read about from Mark 9. Right after Jesus promised the coming of God's kingdom in power, Jesus then, six days later, takes Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, up to that high mountain. And there on the mountain, we read that Jesus was transfigured before their very eyes. The Greek word for transfigured here in the original is metamorpho, which, from which we get the term in English metamorphosis. And so it means that Jesus was changed in a manner visible to Peter, James, and John. They saw a change before them in the person of Jesus. What kind of change did they witness in Jesus? Well, Peter tells us in his letter that they saw his majesty. The term for majesty means grandeur, sublimity, excellence, or magnificence. In the Bible, this term is reserved for God alone, who in that moment also on the mountain spoke with a voice from heaven from his majestic glory, it says. In Matthew's account of the same event, in chapter 17, verse 2 of his gospel, he describes it this way. Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So Peter is telling us that on that holy mountain, he saw a small breakthrough of God's own glory in the person of Jesus. It was a majestic unveiling of truth about God to him and the others on the mountain. In the shining face of Jesus, they beheld God's own majesty. This was not a hollowed out statue lit from the inside on a stage in a dark room. This was a living and breathing human being on a mountaintop who was transfigured and suddenly shone before them like the sun. Brilliant. How can this be? 
Either Peter, James, and John were all deceived in some way on that mountaintop, or, more plausibly, the one true God revealed himself in his majesty to them in the person of Jesus. And Peter is claiming that his eyewitness experience of Jesus transfigured on that holy mountain convinced him that Jesus of Nazareth is in fact the Messiah, the promised king coming in power, God himself in human flesh. Peter is saying that in this debate with the false teachers that he was engaged in in his present day in the first century, that he is a primary source of information. Now, in any investigation or any presentation of the facts in a debate, you should always try and find and listen to primary sources. People who were there in person when it happened are more credible than those who hear about it secondhand. An eyewitness testimony is worth more than hearsay. And Peter is saying here, I was there with the other apostles. We witness with our eyes God's majesty revealed to us in the transfiguration of Jesus. We heard with our ears the voice from heaven that spoke over Jesus from God's majestic glory. We were there. Now let's take a step back. How does this help us answer our question this morning? Can we come to know God? Yes, we can. Because God has made himself known to us personally, as he has revealed himself in time and in space, in history, like on that mountaintop, and also through his word. You see, by observing the creation around us, we can observe many things. We can examine God's powerful design in creation. We can come to agree and see logically that a creator of great intelligence, majesty, and splendor exists. By examining the greatness and beauty of his creation, we can know something of his majesty. Just as, for example, by studying a great masterpiece of a painting, you can examine and come to know a bit of the, the great skill of the painter who made that painting. So too, we can know that about God. But we cannot know God personally unless he reveals himself to us. And think of it in this way, another analogy. It's possible, is it possible, for a fictional character in a novel to know about its author? For example, could Hamlet come to know Shakespeare personally? Or could Harry Potter come to know J.K. Rowling's? Well, there's only one way that that is possible. Only if the author chooses to write himself or herself into the story as a character that then meets Hamlet or meets Harry Potter. So only if Shakespeare makes himself to appear in his play, or J.K. Rowling's makes herself to appear in the pages of her own book, could their characters come to know their author. Well, Peter is saying that that is what God has done in the person of Jesus, that the creator God is the author of authors, who has written himself into his great story. Only this big story of life is not fiction. It is not a cleverly devised myth, as Peter says, because in space and in time, God revealed his glory to eyewitnesses through the person of Jesus Christ. It is a historical claim. The majesty of God was revealed even more, we can say, when Jesus, sometime later, died and rose again from the grave and in resurrected glory appeared to over 500 
eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Now, with all this said, you might be saying, well, that's great for Peter and the apostles and the 500 that witnessed him in his resurrected glory, but what about me? If God would reveal his glory to me in that way, well, then I would believe. I'm glad you asked that question. That leads us to our second point. God's majesty reported. The apostle Peter, he anticipates that same objection from his readers in verse 19. Look again at verse 19. He says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter is saying that their eyewitness experience of the majesty of Jesus is additional confirmation of God's revealed majesty in his word. We have something in our possession that is a reliable source of God's revelation to us, which is now more fully confirmed to us, more reliable now. What is it? Peter calls it the prophetic word. And by that phrase, he's referring to the Old Testament of the Bible. In other words, the Word of God. The Bible is that prophetic Word for us. And Peter says that God's Word is a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, just because you were not there on that mountaintop doesn't mean that you are in the dark about who God is and His revelation to us. You are not without the revelation of God's majesty. His majesty is shown to us in the open book of creation that is ever open before us to examine, to discover his divine power and majesty in creating all that is good and beautiful around us. And also, his majesty is reported to us here in this book, the Bible. We believe that God makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word. And similar to the light shining from Jesus' face in the transfiguration, Peter says that God's word gives light. His word gives light, like a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter is likely referring to Psalm 119, verse 105, which says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, what kind of light shines from God's word? Obviously not a visible light, but a spiritual light. The light of truth and grace. The scriptures shine with truthfulness, with veracity. Very much in line with what Peter says here, the Belgic Confession of Faith, which we hold to in Article 6, says this, The scriptures prove themselves to be from God, For even the blind themselves are able to see the things clearly predicted in them do happen. And that's what Peter is saying here. The apostles were eyewitnesses that have reported to us how Jesus' own life validates the Old Testament. Because Jesus fulfilled so many prophecies from the Old Testament. Do you know that Jesus fulfilled more than 324 individual prophecies that are related to the Messiah in the Old Testament. The late mathematician Dr. Peter Stoner counted the probability of one person just fulfilling 48 of those prophecies, just 48 out of the 324, and found in the Old Testament that that would be 
one in 10 followed by 157 zeros. The probability is so slim. It's hard to even wrap our minds around how improbable that would be. So based on his mathematical reasoning, he writes, any man who rejects Jesus Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact mathematically proved, perhaps more absolutely, than any other fact in the world. So friends, in our information age, when people can't figure out right from wrong, boy from girl, you have this prophetic word that is more fully confirmed to you. God's word is the most reliable source of truth with respect to who God is. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has proved that all more reliable to us. And so, you are not without revelation of God's majesty. It has been recorded and reported to you in this book, the Bible. And remember, Christianity is not a man-made myth, but rather it is a historic revelation of the majestic God. Or as the late C.S. Lewis famously wrote, the story of Christ is simply a true myth. A myth working on us in the same way as others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. And that's what Peter is trying to show us here. That unlike those fake light shows in the mystery cults that Peter and the apostles have reported to us what really happened, which confirmed the hundreds of prophecies priorly made about Jesus in the Old Testament. As Jesus himself said in John 5, The scriptures bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so God has revealed himself to you this morning, friends, through the testimony of his word. The evidence of God's majesty in the person of Jesus is again before you, and God is telling you this morning, I exist, I have made myself known to you, I am revealing myself to you now through my word which bears witness about Jesus. He is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do not refuse him. And so the question is, what will you do with this revelation of God's majesty? And that leads us to our third and final point, God's majesty regarded. I can't say what you will do with God's word, and his majesty as he reveals it to you. Only you and God knows. But since this Bible is God's self-revelation to us, I can tell you what Peter is calling us to. To highly regard the Old and New Testaments of the Bible as the only reliable truth about God. To esteem and revere God's word. Look again at verse 19, where Peter tells us, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Again, as we stated in the beginning, we live in a dark place where truth is hard to find and hate is easily stirred up. Not only that, our own hearts are darkened by our own sinful desires. We can't simply trust what other people tell us. We can't simply trust whatever our heart tells us. But God's word is a reliable source of truth concerning all things about God. Because, again, though many prophecies fulfilled by Jesus have confirmed its trustworthiness, it has not failed in anything that God has set out to accomplish through it. 
The Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything. It is not our only source of truth. The study of creation by good science reveals much truth to us. But when it comes to our knowledge about who God is and what he has done to save us, the Bible must be our ultimate authority. What I mean is that you can find something about the one true God by studying his creation, his handiwork, but you cannot come to know God personally unless you find him as he has revealed himself to you in his word, in human history revealed and reported to us through the written word of God. And that the Bible is our source of theology. And so Peter adds this important point in verse 20 to 21 at the end of our passage, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is where we get our doctrine of the inspiration of God's word, inspired by God himself. This means that the prophetic word, the Bible, is not simply the word of men. It is their word, yes, they spoke and wrote it, as Peter says, but they were men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets like Isaiah and the apostles like Peter spoke from God by the Spirit's sanctifying presence at work in their hearts, moving them to speak exactly what God intended for them to say. And Peter is saying to us that since the Bible was given by divine inspiration, it is true and reliable in all matters it addresses, including the return of Jesus in power to come and judge the living and the dead. God's word has promised his return. His word is reliable in all that it promises since it comes from God himself. Therefore, Jesus shall surely return. Now, what does this mean practically for us well, as we begin this series together, considering the attributes of God, meeting the living God, the source of our study will be nothing less, nothing more than God's word, his inspired word. We can come to know God if we only pay close attention to God's word, highly regarding it as a reliable source of truth for meeting the living God. And so that will be before us, our source, as we embark on this journey to meet the living God. But lastly, I want to commend to you a couple of simple practices here at the close for how we can regularly, daily, regard God's word. We'll take this as wise advice. First of all, we ought to get into the habit of daily reading God's word. What I mean is find a daily Bible reading plan and stick with it. You know, most Bible reading plans only require that we set aside about 10 to 15 minutes of our day, which is so little in comparison to the average amount of time that people spend today swiping their screens on social media or binging on Netflix. If you have a hard time reading, you can easily listen to others reading to you on audio through your smartphones. It's never been easier to take in God's word. And Christians, if you are not reading God's word on a daily basis, it is very likely that you are being more conformed to this world than you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. If we want to become more like Jesus, to share in his majestic glory, 
as those who are conformed to his image, we must be transformed by his word. And so make a habit of getting into his word daily. Secondly, get into the habit of daily reading God's word with your family in what is often called family worship. And so men, we have this responsibility before God, according to Ephesians 5, to sanctify our wives with the word of God. And parents, mothers and fathers, we have this duty before God that we would raise our children in the fear of the Lord, training them in the way of Jesus. And as families, it's very simple to do this. Our own particular family, we try and keep it simple. In addition to the sporadic conversations that we have in the car or out and about about Jesus and about God and about our Christian faith and the times that we pray uh, in those moments scattered throughout the day that are more spontaneous, we almost always every single day after dinner open up our Bibles together and read a short passage together and talk about its meaning, asking the children questions, and we pray together briefly and conclude with a short doxology. This is traditionally what's called family worship. And it usually lasts just about 10, 15 minutes. It's simple. It's easy. But it's this beautiful, powerful way for us to obey Peter's command here to us. For, and this is not wise advice coming from me, this is what the Lord says. You will do well to pay attention to the prophetic word of God. Do well to pay attention to the prophetic word of God in your own lives, beloved. May God stir us up to pay attention to his word as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day of Christ's return dawns upon us. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we rejoice that indeed you have revealed yourself to us, that you have written your own self as a true and living character into the greatest story of all time, in particular in the person of Jesus Christ. We we see through what, which is, that which is reported to us in your word that your majesty has been revealed and you continue to reveal yourself through your living and abiding word, O oh God. We ask that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see and behold by faith Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, majestic in glory, the one with whom you are well pleased, the one who laid down his life for sinners such as us, that we might be brought in to your glory, saved by grace. Lord, we ask that you would work on our hearts, uh, that you would keep your word before us, and you would give us that, urgent, that urgency to pay close attention to your word in our daily lives and together as a church community, that we might be more transformed into the image of Jesus through your word than we are conformed to this present evil age. Do this work among us as we seek to know you all the more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved ones, in response to God's word this morning, let's stand and sing a song of application 227, How Great Thou Art. 227. <laughs>